Many people have been asking me this week how I get to be so lucky to speak to legendary footballer Rio Ferdinand. And the answer is, I just don't know, because that was one of the most beautiful podcasts I've ever recorded. Of course, we know about his stellar career in sport and we know how incredible he is as a presenter. But actually, the Rio I spoke to was exploring his vulnerabilities. It was talking about what he's passionate about, the changes he wants to make in society, the kindness and compassion and the positive change he wants to drive. We spoke about the lows of his life and the great loss that he has gone through and his family has gone through. And we spoke about where he is today and ultimately a new perspective potentially on what he wants to do with his time remaining on the planet. And I have to say, that has been one of the most uplifting, emotional, but I have a fire in my belly, and I think you're going to too. Rio is an extraordinary human, and we need more of them. And I can't wait to hear what you think of this podcast. Enjoy. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going you won't need to bring your frown I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not On The High Street for my kitchen table and since then I've gone on to launch Holly & Co. I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses and I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. Here are my conversations of inspiration. So Rio, I cannot believe I'm actually speaking to you. Welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Thank you very much. I've heard all about you, so I'm looking forward to it. I can't believe Rio just said that to me, but I'm going to try and contain myself here because you are one of our legendary footballers, an incredibly talented broadcaster, but also a powerful campaigner. So we've got lots to talk about. Mm. Um, and as I just mentioned, we have a mutual friend in the pretty bloody amazing Sue Finesse, founder of We Are Eight. More on that later, but um, you're in the We Are Eight offices, I believe, recording yep. this today. Yeah, I am. I do a lot of stuff from here, so you can see the uh, the eight logo in the back there. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a great place. I come here, you know what? I come here to get my spirits lifted because Sue's that type of person. And the, the atmosphere and energy in the office is, is always like that, so it's always great to come by. It's literally tonic. I texted her this morning thanking her for our connection, and I always feel that when she texts me back, it's like, um, it's quite magical, actually. Mm. It's like an angel. I think she is. But we're going to talk about her in a bit. But we're going to talk about you, if that's okay with you. Starting off with the young Rio, um, who grew up in Peckham. Mm -hmm. I was very surprised, actually, to... Well, I wasn't surprised to find out that you love playing football. But I was surprised to know that you were a keen gymnast and a dancer. Mm. And that at 11, you won a scholarship to the Central School of Ballet in London. I was thinking of Billy Elliot. I was sort of channeling that when I was thinking of you. Did you try to keep it under wraps? Because I can imagine Peckham 11 Ballet. Hmm. Did it mix? No, it didn't mix at all. <laughs> I um, didn't think so. It was Billy Elliot before Billy Elliot came about. 
<laughs> but it was um, it was weird. I think I was just lucky that I was a young a young person whose mum and dad filled them with a lot of confidence as a kid, mm. always encouraged to try things. And I, I quickly became someone that never, ever wanted to be pigeonholed, even as a kid like that. Like, so anyone from an estates in South London, Peckham, ballet or gymnastics wouldn't, or, or drama would not have been a thing that would have really been associated no. with any young person coming from that background. So I was open to trying a lot of things. I just wanted to enjoy myself. I'd done stuff that I liked. I'd done stuff that I wanted to do. And I wasn't really governed or ruled by anybody else's opinion. Mm. And that came from strong parents and strong parenting, um, which I tried to kind of be now. So when I'd done it, I didn't really have any fear. I mean, initially at the beginning when people were saying, like, where are you going out of rucksack going off to your estate? Like, where are you going? I'm going football. Because that was the obvious. People would assume that I was doing that anyway. Yeah. And after a while, I was just like, I do dancing, innit? And there were guys, like some, a couple of the older guys, because most of my friends are older, would go like, what dancing? But because I played football and I was in the crowd anyway, yeah. it kind of never really had any resistance or mocking or the odd comment here or there. But then like, listen, mate, they know I could play football, so it quickly just washes away. So football in many different ways was probably my saviour. That gave you like the hall pass to be able to do all of the other things sort of under the under the cloak of of football. Tell me, you you mentioned I didn't want to be pigeonholed from a young age. Mm. That's actually almost um, the opposite, isn't it, from kids? You know, we we, we all want to fit in exactly the same. Mm. And you said it's from strong parenting, which I'm going to talk to you about later on but that I think that needs courage mm. from a little one to say I don't want to be I don't need to be like anyone else yeah and, and you for me as well but you courage comes from good parents strong parents who, who give you that confidence if you've got parents that are, uh, don't want you to try new things don't encourage you to do new things don't give you mm. that that confidence it's hard to then generate confidence from within as a young 11 year old um, and that's yes. why I believe that the parenting and the way you do it and listening to other people and communicating about parenting to get the best practice is always good and that's what I've always tried to do but my mum and dad were great at that and I'm a, I'm a perfect example of, of of good parents who were present but had a purpose and gave me a purpose mm. another thing as well I, I couldn't just pick something up and then say I'm going to do that and not do it next week right you go and do it do you like it? No? Okay, yeah, I like it, but then, okay, right, can, we're going to commit to this for a while then. Right, yes. And I think you find a lot of young people are, are quite in and out of different things and habits and hobbies here and there, and it becomes a nightmare for parents. And my sisters are the same, my dad brought them up the same, and they're very driven about what they want to do, and they've, they've got a real clear understanding and idea of where they're going in life. But that only comes when you get when you're not allowed to jump from different thing to different thing. Yeah. Because when you do that, you never become focused. You never hone down and drum down and double down on something to really get to know it and really understand, do I love this? Mm. Like for instance, so when I'd done ballet, I'd done that for like a four-year scholarship. And I'd done gymnastics for three years before that. I'd done a bit of drama and before that. And I was playing football all at the same time. And it just got to a point at 14 years old, 13, 14 years old. And my dad said, Rio, it's probably best you choose one now. Because right. we can't get you from... Peckham to Farringdon, back to Peckham, to West London, Hangar Lane, almost outside of London for training with football, back to London. And then on a Saturday, it could be anywhere. We played against different districts. So when I said, listen, let's make a decision and then go for it. Thankfully, I picked football. Thankfully for all of us. My mum once said um, something about my son. You know, Holly, he, he, he needs to have his peacock feathers in something. Yeah. 
Kids need peacock feathers and they need to shine and bustle those feathers with something. It gives them confidence. Mm. But as you said, and we're going to talk more about kids, is if you don't spend long enough on something, you'll never know what your peacock feathers are. Yeah, and I, and I think you've got to find what you're good at as well. What, what do you, yeah. One, what do you enjoy? And then two, what are you good at? Yes. Like those two things there can generate so much kind of interest, so much passion, so much determination, drive, consistency, desire. All those things can be formed, but you need those two things at the beginning. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And you've got to mm. want to do it. You've got to love it. And it's where it crosses over. Yeah. That's that point, isn't it? It's a crossover. And very few people to get, get to get both mm. of those things. You normally get one yes. or the other, or some people have neither. And just have to go to work and get up and trunch to work every day thinking, oh my God. But I was very lucky. I found something I loved. I found, I, I, luckily, I was good at it and I worked hard at it. And then you, you, it enables you to do special things mm. and wonderful things. Mm. I was reading about your childhood. Um, you Growing up with your mum and your brother, Anton, and my on dad. this councillor's... And yeah. yes, and your dad, and he would he lived very close by to you. And your parents, as you said, instilled these very strong values in this sense of discipline and mm. real work ethic. That sense of work ethic and dedicating yourself in, do you think it's hard for children now to do that? Or do you think that we don't promote those values as society, for, almost outside of our parenting, that mm. we've got to get in the trenches and dig deep it's a difficult one though i think the foundations are at home and it d depends the environment that that young person is brought up in as well um, as i said i was fortunate i had two parents that I, I saw work ethic i saw my dad traveling from from our house in south london to east london to go to work dalston coming back to london to south london to pick me and my couple of my mates up to go to west london to go training and then back home midnight one o'clock in the morning mm. and repeating that week after week so seeing that working, my dad didn't have to talk to me about work ethic and working hard. Right. My mum my didn't have to talk. I just saw my mum was one of those people that was invested in the community, helping other people, helping with their kids. If they needed a, uh, something in, in the shop, she'd get it for people, etc. And that sense of the community, that's why I'm really invested in We Are Eight. That's probably my mum's side coming over to me. But some people don't have them influences. And it's that, that's the unfortunate thing. But then where are those other people? I mean, I, I lived mm -hmm. on, a, on a council estate. I, I used to go to a youth club called Leighton Square Youth Club. And there were people that worked there that if I didn't become a footballer, I would have aspired to be them. Yes. Because they had a job, they had a car, they had clothes on their back, they could get food and they had a home. That's all I really wanted. I didn't, I didn't wish for anything else. And, and, that, and that looked like a good, solid life and a good like, work workplace to be an enjoyable different every day outside with kids and I thought a lot of my friends went into that work but I, I had good positive role models around me yes there was negative stuff that went around and people the kids my age and a bit older and what's not were doing crazy stuff at times mm. I don't know sometimes it's got to come from within us as to what you want to do where do you see yourself what are your dreams and aspirations and you've got to follow them you had this upbringing and I think really one of the most important skills potentially we can give our children almost the grounding the foundations the roots into the soil is absorbing you know we're absorbing what they believe their values they're doing the walk they're not just talking the talk and you're this is coming through and you say that I was surprised to see this that when you were looking at sort of careers if you hadn't have chosen that career you wanted to see yourself as a council youth worker mm. and do you think that this is where the Rio Ferdinand foundation comes from that is your the other life that you might have lived coming through yeah 100% like I said on on the youth center on where we where we lived 
those guys that run that were the people that I aspired to be if I didn't become a footballer. And my best mates all worked for Southwark Council mm -hmm. doing that same job of the people that looked after us as kids and are now fully invested in the community. And, and a couple of my, my good friends, if they walk through South London, Peckham, etc., now as mid-40-year-old people, they still have young kids coming up to them going, that's, that's so-and-so. Because they know the work that they've put into that community, you get rewarded because people remember you, they, they respect you, they appreciate you. And that's all, that's all you want in life. I think you want to be respected. You want to be appreciated for what you give and what you do. And you want to have a, a life that you can, you can do some, some half-decent things. But I never, I never really aspired for much more. I wanted to be a footballer. And, and it's, it's different now because social media really opens up people's eyes to what more there is behind the curtain. Mm. The trappings of being a, a footballer or, or somebody in the public eye. The cars, the holidays, the this, the that. I never saw that when I was a kid when I wanted to be a footballer. Yeah. Me wanting to be a footballer was just purely was pure. purely about playing football because I loved it. Mm. And I saw people playing in front of big crowds around the world. And that just was something that I thought, wow, that's what I'd love to do that. And so the reasons for, for, for our generation wanting to be footballers, I think a lot of the kids, unfortunately now, because of social media, and I don't blame them, but they see so much that their reasons for going and for doing and for trying are very different now. And and you can't blame them in a way. It's, a, no. it's and we'll talk about we are eight and why it's such fascinating, important mm. work. Just going back to the foundation, the foundation supports you know young people from disadvantaged areas across the UK and Ireland. It helps them to lift their aspirations, what we were just talking about, and achieve their full potential through things such as sports and music. Mm. I know something that really resonates with me because part of the purpose at Holly and Combe, what I did at Notton High Street, was to help people feel happier doing what they love for a living. That you know every day they wake up. They are fully them and they're they're going for it. And I want to help everyone sort of find that skill or that talent or make money out of their passion. And I call it finding their diamond. You know, that almost it's a bit rough mm. when you first find it and then you shine it up and then it starts to literally glow and shine from within. And I can always tell when I find someone that's found their diamond. Mm. You know, they they walk into a room and you're like, that's someone who lives every day in their glory. When you were awarded your OB in 2022, you said you wanted to use your platform as this force of good, instilling hunger in the next generation. When you think about now your your life, you know, I see you on TV all the time, football in the past and things. Is that now what's going to drive you? Is this going to be your diamond? 100%. I think impacting other people is a huge thing. I think, as I said, my mum was really into that, not at this scale. But I feel like I've been given a great platform and I now have the leverage to really have massive social impact for people, to help people, to highlight situations where people need help in a climate at the moment where a lot of that is needed. Mm. Um, so for me to be selfish and just think, you know what, I've done well, pat myself on the back and just get on with my life, I don't think that would be good and I don't think that would be a great example, first and foremost, to my kids. So, yeah, the, the foundation, I mean, it's going, been going over 10 years now, over 10,000 young people have been impacted and more, many more. We're, we're, we're doing deals now with different corporate companies, different organisations around the world to really give us the, the resources to impact many more people at scale. But I see the work that gets done and you see these young kids that come into the 
uh, foundation, that, that, uh, their background. I mean, I can't even begin to go into some of the details of what they've gone through and what they've seen as young people in these dis- disadvantaged areas. I was going to say, you must have so many stories of what you're... Yeah what you've observed. Yeah. Will you share some of that? Yeah, just like homelessness. You get kids that are homeless, kids that can't get, get a meal. They can't, not they can't get a lunch or a dinner. They can't get a meal for the day. But they go into school and their only meal is at school. So they don't get breakfast. They go to school, they eat, they go home, they don't get food. Um, abuse of varying different levels. Um, some of like ridiculous I couldn't go into even, but... Kids that have just seen far too much negativity in their lives mm. and you think, wow, if we can just help these guys and give them a little bit of a route to a, or a pathway to some opportunities. And I think when, when I first started the foundation, I was very much about education, education, which is hugely important and get, re-engaging the young people that have fell out of the system or, or couldn't be engaged with, with the normal, normal kind of school system. Yeah. So we were doing that and we were quickly finding that, yes, we got them, but then we'd, we'd lose them after a period of time because... What's the next step? These guys are looking for long-term solutions. Mm-hmm. We didn't have that. We had short-term solutions. Get your education and go out to the wild world and deal with it yourself. So we end up badging on to the, to the back of that education piece is the opportunities with some of the corporate companies that I've been working with. I've BT being one of them, Aston Martin, et cetera. Uh, now Warner have just come on board and, and many more. I think we're going to be doing a, a deal with a big clothing company soon. But... It was getting that next piece mm. of the jigsaw puzzle, of, uh, to, like, f- f- yeah, to, to enable social mobility at a real good, good level and good speed. So you get the education, and all of a sudden you get the opportunity. And one of my big things was, uh, we're not giving you a job, we're not getting you a job. We're going to give you the opportunity, yes, the opportunity to present yourself. And that's where the element of creating hunger, and desire, and passion, and consistency has to come from if you're going to go and get a job on that route. And so it's um it's been it's been good it's been hard it's been emotional at times watching the stories unfold but and another huge part of the the, the foundation sorry to keep going on but I always wanted to be to have like people be the the beacon of light who's the beacon of light within that community so we get someone fully education process gone through get to the to the the job element get the opportunity get the job. That is the example. Mm-hmm. How many can we get in the, back in the community so these people, young people, start seeing them? That's what I needed. I needed to see visuals of people. Who are yeah. they? I needed to touch yep. and feel them. And so we're creating, we've created so many of these people. Now some of them are working in big corporate companies. Some of them are running football clubs in the local community. Some of them are running uh, social media platforms for, for, for football clubs and for different various things in music, in drama, in film. It's, it's amazing to see it all unfold, but that's the most rewarding part for me and what I get a massive kick out of now. I love that. Gosh, beacon of light, a beacon of light. Ah. <laughs> I knew I was going to get emotional on this one. I just, I, everyone told me, if you cry on Rio, Holly, <laughs> you know, like, I'm just like, I'm going to keep it together, everyone. Um, just going back to your story. So you're, it's a teenager. Mm-hmm. You took the leap into football. Your dad's like, let's commit in. Let's commit in. And you started playing for various youth teams before settling at West Ham United. Did you ever have a backup plan? Or did you, like when you went in... Were you talented enough? Did you know and believe in yourself that you were going to go all the way? No, just just before I signed on full time. So in the around this time of year, actually, so around uh, May, I was just leaving school in my last year. Up until that point, I just hoped I was just working as hard as I could and hoping that I'd make it. Yeah. 
And you're never sure. You're never 100% sure. A year prior to that, I'd been sub for six months right. for my team. So it was never always just like that upward trajectory all the time. There, were, there was peaks and troughs and there was ups and downs, which is good for young people to understand because that's just natural and normal. And then in the May before the season finished and the May before I went full-time, which in full, I went full-time in, in July, I played in a game for two years above my, my age group in a cup final for West Ham at Stamford Bridge, Chelsea's ground. And I, we won the tournament, we won the cup. And I was an integral part of the reason probably why we'd done it. I played really well, um, if I do say so myself. And um, that after that game, there were, everyone says, was there a moment when you realised that game made me realise I'm going to make it? Right. I know I'll make because I know I'm, I know I'm going to work hard enough. Yeah. There'll be no stone left unturned. I've got the passion, dedication. I love it. And now I know I'm good enough because the players I've just played against, a couple of them have played in the first team and I'm better than them. Right. So I'm going to make it. I can feel it. And that was the first time genuinely that I went, this is me. This is what I'm going to mm. do now for the rest of my life. So I was lucky to have that moment. Every week I hand over this part of the podcast to our brilliant partners at Dell Technologies. We've covered a number of topics through our business pharmacies and how do I scale my business is one of the most requested topics. But there's no one size fits all to the answers because it's so personal to each founder. Dell really understand this. And so it's why they have launched Dell for Startups, a free service that provides startup expertise from dedicated technology advisors and scalable solutions to ensure your business is always ready to grow. So whether you need a personal tech expert on hand, server solutions or financing options to allow you to scale your hardware, head over to dell.com forward slash UK startups. Now, back to our conversation of inspiration. I think we sometimes talk about ego, don't we, in such a negative way, but how important it actually is. Self-belief, that little moment you had, that was your own rocket fuel. Mm. That was you believing in you. And ultimately, that's all we've got, isn't it? As what you were saying about the youth, they've got to have that, ability to believe in themselves to keep themselves going otherwise you give up and I'm so glad that you shared that with us Um, over the years I've always used um, analogies with sport and and Rio I am not a sports lady (laughs) but I use it because you know for 22 years now I've been passionately advocating for people to do what they love and small businesses and try to build platforms for them to live these lives but ultimately you have to believe in yourself. Mm. It's complete drive. It's hard graft. No one sees it. There's no reward for it. And you've got to manifest the future. You know, you've got to basically see where you're going, believe in it, do everything, not complain, be your own boss, be the worst person to yourself to get there. And I've always thought about sports people and how ultimately you're almost an entrepreneur in your own right. Mm. Tell me about your viewpoint there, because I know a lot of people listening today mm. That's what they're doing right now. They're trying to do that. It's, it's, a, it's a mad one. I think we're always told in society, we're always told, oh, you can't do that. Yes. The first port call in this country, especially, I don't know about other countries, I'm talking about us, is always, oh, no, no, you can't do that. Yeah. And, oh, that's, that, that market's oversaturated. <laughs> There's, oh, you can't get into that workplace. There's too many people going for the same jobs. 
I, I just can't understand that thought process. You've got to back yourself in all situations, like because you've put the hard work in, because you've done the due diligence, because you've got the passion, the desire, the commitment. I can go in there and be a bit different than what the norm or what they want, what they've always asked for. And I will put myself in the best position to actually get the job or create a business. And I think I was, I said, like I said, I've always needed examples. I like examples. And I think a lot of people are like, you know, the visuals or a good solid example in front of you, someone who's doing, not saying, not talking the talk, mm. who's doing. And you look at people like, I don't know, Gymshark's a great example. Young English guys there that have smashed it. And they would have been told like hundreds of thousands, if not more, people say, Oh, you can't go into that le leisure market. Yes. You can't go into sport and leisure. Nike, Puma, Adidas, they've dominated that for years. You can't even penetrate. These guys have created a billion dollar company on, on the back of people saying, no, you can't. Mm -hmm. You look at people like, I don't know, another good English example, Cortez, with one of the coolest, hippest, great, unbelievable brands, clothing brand. Young guy, young black guy doing it. Clint, his name is. Coolest guy about. He would have been told, you can't compete Supreme, Palace, or Gucci, and all these guys. There's all got all these different brands, Zara even. All, you can't compete. This guy's now smashing it out of the park. Don't see marketing like it. He's not your typical marketer or designer or anything like that, but he's absolutely smashing it because there's a belief. There's a, Like you said, I think it's a perfect word as well. There's, a, there's an ego and there's a little bit of arrogance, but it's about finding the perfect balance for it to work. Yes. You can't go too far arrogant or too far ignorant or have an ego that's too big for a room. You've got to have a big enough ego that when you walk in and people go, actually, he's quite sure of himself, but he's actually done the work behind the scenes to back that up. And the, the, them two examples, just them, I can think of loads of more, but those two examples there are perfect examples of people that went against this, what the, the norm, went against the grain, pure belief, a bit of ego, a bit of arrogance in the right amounts and have done the background work to get them to the position they are in now. And that, and that, oh gosh, I could just listen to you say that because, you know, you've seen it also in your sports career. Mm. You know, you've seen people rise, you've seen these things and, and for everyone listening, listen to that because actually all we love to do is knock people down. Mm. It's all about reflection on ourselves, really. Mm. Of course, I don't sort of, I'm not going to say it out loud, but I sort of don't want you to go and do that because then that would shine a light on me and the fact I'm getting on the tube again to <laughs> a shitty boss who I hate. And I've been telling you for 10 years, I'm going to leave this job and I haven't. Mm. Um, you did that and, and achieving what only can be described as a stellar football career, working your way up through the ranks, joining the premiership and ultimately being signed for Manchester United for this record-breaking fee. And I can tell that you're a humble guy, but I'm wondering how hard it was. You know, it was a bit before social media, I think, but, you know, to keep your feet on the ground <laughs> during this rise to fame. You know, you were 23 years old. Mm. You didn't have necessarily the examples to think it was huge or you did know it was huge. I mean, how did you keep those feet on the ground? Again, I think it goes back to the foundations of parents. Like, I... Uh... I got in a lot of trouble, don't get me wrong. I can sit here and look back and happy I got through it, but I did get in a lot of trouble growing up and, mm -hmm. and coming to terms with the the huge interest and public interest in your life outside of football. I grew up wanting to be a footballer and that's it. I didn't, I didn't consider all of the press and the, the showbiz and the media that comes with it. People trying to tear you down and stuff like that. And if you make mistakes like your friends at 18 years old, at 17, at 19, 20, that they're all making, you can't do that because it'll be in the paper. It took me a long time to get to grips with that. 
But once I got to Manchester United, I've done a lot of that crazy stuff. Not that I stopped it completely, but I've done it at the right times. I chose the right times to indulge and enjoy myself. But my main focus was on winning because I was I was lucky that I, I got to an environment that was used to winning, knew how to win, mm. and somewhere that I could be a sponge and take a lot of the goodness from all the other people in that change room and add it, add it to my armory to become a better player that would help the team then win. So... My main thing in, in, in football was always about winning and be a, becoming better as a player, but being a part of a winning team. And I'd never won until I got to Man United. And so they, they really, that going to that club, joining the, the characters, the individuals, the manager there, was for me the, the turning point in my career. Were you suddenly part of a family mm. that you didn't want to let down? Another family. You've obviously got a very strong family mm. bringing you up, but suddenly, and again, possibly going back to your foundation, when you've got other people around you, you now have not only yourself to let down, but others. Was that an influence? Yeah, I think more to change your room because don't forget, these guys have got yeah. five or six Premier League titles, some of them as individuals or Champions League and FA Cups and stuff. And that's part of history. And if I'm going to go out and continue to indulge outside of the football pitch, being a social butterfly and being here, there and everywhere, and then go training and don't perform, you'll get called out very quickly. Yeah, and I quickly became that person. That to if it's going to be to the detriment of me winning, or our team winning, I'm going to look at you differently as well. So it be quickly becomes part of your makeup. That yeah, you can enjoy yourself and you can have a good time, but you do that at the right time. That isn't mm. going to impact us as a team. Yeah, responsibility for yourself and others. Mm. And, yeah, uh, and that's it. Yeah, yeah. responsibility is hard to take sometimes. I, I read that there was a moment during the course of your footballing career that you look back on that sort of defined you winning against Chelsea in Moscow. Mm, yeah. It must have been a very surreal moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what? It's like we started this conversation talking about my childhood, being in Peckham, and my mum sacrificing, my dad sacrificing, um, just where you've come from. And then all of a sudden, you're at the bottom of the steps in Moscow. You just beat Chelsea in the Champions League final. It's like getting to the top of Mount Everest with no trainers on. Yeah. You don't normally get that moment to sit and do that. And I did. I got I was stood there waiting for Chelsea to go up the stairs and get their runners up medals and that's a good it's a good like four or five minutes. And I could hear my mum screaming. Oh, could she was you? in the stadium. She was just I could and I saw her trying to climb clamber over chairs and to get across to get my attention. And when I heard because my mum when I was a kid would always shout outside the on the estate to get me up to come up for dinner. Rio Rio so every one of my mates knows that shout. <laughs> and she was doing it in Moscow after we'd won the Champions League final. It was just like such a crazy experience. And then you think about your life. You think about how a kid, another one on the way. My wife was in the stadium at the time. My, my family, my two best mates were there who I'd grown up on my estate with. All these things start flooding through and I just got really emotional and started to, like, my bottom lip went. And I remember my defensive partner, Nemanja Vidic, said, Rio, Rio, not here, not here. <laughs> and he just, he just shaked me out of it. I was like, okay, okay, yeah, you're right. Sorry, sorry, sorry. But really, I should have just let it go. Yeah. But it was like, it was such a, like, a, a moment that you dream of and you think, is like, our dream's real. 
I've been able to live it, man. So I'm lucky. Our dream's real. Yeah. I mean, what a moment. I've just felt it being in, in, in mm. being there. Um, we touched on sort of that vulnerability that you sort of pulled together waiting in that line. I wanted to, of course, touch on your beautiful family and your devastating loss of your first wife, Rebecca. And I mm. firstly wanted to say how truly sorry I am for your loss, Rio. Um you made a heartbreakingly beautiful documentary and you've written a book about your experience of grief and loss. And I think this is where most of us saw a different Rio or to the football legend or the Rio we thought we knew from media and all those sorts of things. And I know personally that your vulnerability from those that I know have read your book and and seen the documentary has helped them. Did you worry about showing yourself in that vulnerable light? Because... Just like you just described, you know, you didn't let yourself go in that line. Mm. Um, how have you thought about this Rio, the vulnerable Rio? Yeah, I, um, it was weird. I was in a bit. I was in a dark place anyway at the time when when BBC came to me and and my my management and said, "Listen, we've got an idea. We'd love you to do a documentary about your experience. It would help a lot of people." I remember sitting there with my team and just thinking, "I." I ain't got to do this. What am I doing this for? Like, mm. and a lot of it was about like me, 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 me. I don't, I, I don't, me, I don't. And then I don't know who said it, but it's just like you, you could actually impact a lot of people. Like men are a very kind of macho, the machoism, the macho changing room. Men don't talk. There's a lot of people you could probably help, let alone the kids that are going through this as well, who might see the experiences of your kids and think, well, okay, I've been through that. Or I, I, I might be coming into this. And so that was the main reason. And first and foremost, it was to help my kids because I don't think I'd have gone and got therapy or seen people or spoken out the way I did and communicated how I felt, shown vulnerability, um, shown emotion as freely as I did without being part of that project. So it helped in so many different ways and it helped my kids. I mean, it's going to help my kids. My kids have never watched the full thing yet. So I think actually my older ones have baby, but Tia and Karina has only two, but then the new baby as well. But this is something that they'll be able to take at some point mm. in their life and really take in and get a better understanding as to what we've been through as to why we are how we are. Absolutely. And I know you broke some taboos surrounding men and their emotions. And mm. you've seen, I just on a side note, you've seen the football changing rooms and you've seen men mm. you've seen stadiums and you've seen your bottom lip going and, and not letting it out you've seen the lack of communication and speaking do you think we've got a real issue for men at the moment in terms of being vulnerable or opening up i mean we'd look at the statistics these days mm. and it's is it the number one killer for men over in their 40s what's your take on on this, I only ask because as feminism is rising and we're talking more and more about the strength of women and all those things, which mm -hmm. is perfect. I live in a whole house full of men. Um, mm -hmm. But I look at them and I look at the differences and I sometimes feel like they're not represented. The good men, they're not represented. Mm. Yeah, I think it's definitely moved on. Don't get me wrong. When I first started out on, I think it was seven or eight years ago. It's definitely moved on and there's more conversations being had about it. But at the same time, I don't know if the workplace especially is really still as open as it can be to allowing men to be a bit more emotional maybe because I found it. Listen, I never really cried at all. 
But I, mm. I know when I went to the grave or saw my kids in certain situations or when my kids are upset, that little bit of a cry sometimes is, it alleviates so much stress off your shoulders. You feel that much lighter and you think, oh, f- thank God I cried there a little bit. Do you know what I mean? And, yeah. and, but when you keep it all in, that, that builds pressure, weight on your shoulders, stress. And so, and, and the problem is, it's some from from some quarters, especially the older generation, is frowned upon. Yes, and you look down upon for doing that. And I was around someone a while ago, and, and someone I knew was suffering some mental health issues. And so that person's member of their family was like, "It's only words, or it's or you're only seeing certain things on social media. You, you lot can't deal with that." It's like, what about if you was getting hit, or would you wouldn't be able to deal with that just because the words? And I'm like. Just because it's words or just because it's a feeling doesn't make it any less real. relevant or real. Do you know what I mean? So, But that's the older generation talking. It's changing that. So I, I presume that it's going to get better over time, but it's not going to be an instant quick fix. No, it's not. No, it's, it's not. Because a, a it's a difficult subject and hard for men to talk about initially. But it's making that first step is the key. Because I don't think I would have made that first step without the pressure of a, a, a TV program. Mm. And a lot of people, I think, that some people was like, oh, you're doing that for self, I don't know, praise or for to, 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 to keep your star shining. And I was like, this isn't about that. Do you know what I mean? This is about like trying to connect with your kids and in a situation yeah. that I could never imagine ever in my life, wildest dreams that they'd have to go through. So how am I going to help them? I can't, I ain't got the answers. There's no book that tells you. There's no one that comes in when you're, you're told that your wife's or your mum's passing away and leaving three kids as well or grandkids, what you're meant to do. You're not taught that in school because every single book you read in school is a fairy tale mm. about people lasting forever. You, you never speak about, there's never a, a death ending really, which is a definite in everyone's life. Yes. And we don't talk about it as kids, so you're never prepared ever. You're so right. And you, you allude there to, sadly, two years later, you lost your dear mum. And mm. and it, do you think that grief has shaped you into the person now you are today? Do you think that that has added into who Rio is today? Yeah, it's definitely made me more of a mature or understanding or compassionate or it, it, someone who has more empathy. Um, yeah, I'm a, a better person now, 100%. The decision-making that I, I, I have in my process is different to what I was like when I was younger, before that turmoil. Um, I'm a better husband, 100%. And again, meeting Kate as well has, has been a huge thing for me because you learn things from a lot of people. She's a bit younger than me, but you still can learn from people. Mm. And I've learned a hell of a lot from her um, about love. Mm. Um yeah, I, I couldn't imagine when it all happened in them two years that I could be in a place where I'm at now. With, yeah, I'm uh, not sure. Uh, yeah, like a, a loving wife, somebody who I'm madly in love with, and five kids, like two yeah. two extra kids on, on uh, with, with somebody else. I just couldn't have ever... If someone said to me a year later or six months later, there's no way that I could have even dreamed this up or thought, or mm. thought that far ahead. I was like, no chance. And then people just walk into your life and change it. And that's what I've been fortunate with because not everyone gets that. No, they don't. I can mm. imagine that your control in a good way, I, I call it founder titus when you're a founder, you know, you just can't handle, you know, letting things, the mm. universe control us. And I can imagine, I, I also read you saying, I've always been able to control my outcomes in my life. You know, on the football pitch, I've got control. On the training grounds, mm. I've got control. 
And this potentially was it one of these this this era of your life where you were out of control that that mm. was and in a way maybe relying on the universe that then has given you your beautiful uh, evolved life mm. you know that was you couldn't control it but it happened mm. regardless didn't it yeah like you say i think all through my life i've had real good control over outcomes and it's um it was it was hard to be in a position where you're looking around for help and there's actually no one that can help you because mm. you can't I, I don't i've never really asked for a lot of help i've just done things and found solutions on my own and through sheer ability and, and, and desire of playing football. That's the only world I knew. And then for your life to kind of be rocked upside down and then you start asking people for solutions and for help and no one's got the answer. And it's a, it's a lonely place and, and added to that, which is even worse, because you kind of put yourself to one side and you go into autopilot. But when you've got three young kids there that you've got to explain these situations to, I, I couldn't give that to any my worst enemy yeah like that feeling of that of that conversation or watching your kids have to say bye to someone and then they don't understand it and the confusion and the emotions and how upset and the trauma is just uh it will never leave you and you th those visuals and those pictures in your mind will never leave you and you have to kind of march on it's just one of those things that you have to do you don't sometimes you think like is it worth getting out of bed even like the, yeah. the, the, like Oh, I can imagine. Like, should we just all stay at home and just let yeah. the kids just not go back to school? And but you have to find normality and you have to kind of rock on, rock on with it. But it is, it is a crazy time. And like my mum was my rock, and then two years later she kind of passed. And then you're just like, like what, have, what have I done? Have I been that bad of a person, or mm. what have I done to deserve? What have these kids done to deserve this? Yeah. Forget me. What have these kids done? Because when Rebecca passed away, my mum became like their mum Yeah. for a couple of years. She was there every day and then obviously that happened. But I think, yeah, the, 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 the comeback is is always nice and, and I've always heard that and I didn't know what it was about, but I've been part of one. And I said, our family are as happy as we've ever been now. I'm so happy for you. I'm going to try and keep my mm, shit thanks. together. <laughs> Second time, but I'm so happy for you, Rio. And you know... Good things happen to good people. I know that mm. for sure. That's one thing I know. Thank you. Um, another area in which you are driving change is within football and this the negative topics surrounding it. And you have a docu-series called The Tipping Point, which mm. explores these three areas that plague sport. And I remember when I was having chats with Sue and talking about you and, and actually, and we're going to talk about We Are Eight. I talk about We Are Eight all the time. But, <laughs> you know, one of the reasons you love it so much is that, you know, these three things are racism, homophobia and players struggling with their mental health. Tell me about why you felt now was the right time to highlight these issues. And um, what more do you think can be done to change this? Because are these not things that go back to almost the beginning of sport? Yeah, these are situations that have been that have plagued the sport for many, many years. Yeah, um, but have never been dealt with, and we've probably never had the the platforms to be able to deal with them at the right scale and right pace. But now, obviously, with social media and with film and content, you've got a greater opportunity of really kind of enlightening people on those topics. And you know, listen, sexuality sexuality in football has never been a thing, never been accepted mm. at all in football. Um, and there's a type of language that I was a part of 
uh, growing up that was just normal but would be seen today as being horrendous. Yes. Um, same racism. Her, the, 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 the racist behaviour has been in football since before I was even alive and at some points was accepted as the norm. But these things change and the mental health has become a real hot topic now and people are really in, engaged in that and under getting a better understanding for it. But it's still a conversation that's probably not had enough mm. and actioned enough. So those three topics are, are, are huge in the game and, and, and in wider sport, in what in life as well. But to kind of hone down into, into football was really kind of great for me to kind of see the the problems, but also what solutions can we find? And it's, it's weird because when I was filming, I got racially abused at a game. So we filmed a little bit of that process. And if it's funny enough, that happened two years ago, right? It still hasn't been resolved. So it's gone through the courts. It got thrown out. It's coming back into the courts. It's, so You were filming a documentary. You're Rio. What hope? Yeah, exactly. Is there? I'm if, trying, if, I'm trying if, to tell young players now, you've got to go because the system is literally looks yeah, better. Yeah. And then all of a sudden... Actually, my one's horrendous. And I've been racially abused since. And I've been asked, this is last week, by the way, at a game. And I got asked, would you want to make a statement and we'll follow this up and we'll go to court? And I said, listen, my other case ain't been resolved yet. So until that case has been resolved, you think I'm going to go and relive another experience like this and be dragged through the courts and the two years that I've had here, I'm going to, that's going to be four years. No chance. I'd rather not, thank you. And that's where we are with it. The system is all wrong. The police haven't got the resources. Have they got the intentions? People I saw do have, but I think the wider... It's, there's a lot of grey areas and there's yeah. a lot of ability to manoeuvre for the perpetrators to, to, to get away with this type of stuff. And social media, if you follow, push forward on from that, is an extension of that because it's somewhere where people and perpetrators of bad speech, hate speech, discrimination of all sorts can go and hide. And they're allowed to by the social media companies, which is the problem. Which is the problem. And I read that there's, am I right in saying this, a huge increase in racist abuse in football in recent years. Yeah. Which actually, you think about how we're all meant to be moving on, you know, becoming more educated, understanding fairness and, and equality and all these sorts of things. And yet it's increasing. Do you put that directly due to the rise of social media and the platform now that the racist, um, awful human beings, homophobic humans have just at their fingertips undercover? As well. Yeah, I think these people have always been there. Yeah. But they haven't had the platform to shout and spout this stuff. So they've said it in their local pub, 20 people here. Mm. Or maybe to their mate on the, on the side of their table and let them to have a conversation about it and, and the world don't hear it. Whereas now, they can press a button, it goes to hundreds, if not thousands, if not millions of people. Yeah. And... That is the difference. These people now have a platform to do that. And the problem is, is that through the documentary, the findings were that because there's so much activity around conspiracy theories, hate speech, racism, homophobic speech, discriminations of all, of all kinds, because the activity that goes on around those kind of messages that go on the platforms, there's so much activity, there's so much engagement around it mm. that that generates a lot of money. So there's the reason why right. the companies don't want to put stuff in place and stipulations in place to stop these people from spouting this stuff because that will mean the dollar signs or the pound signs don't move as quick. Each week I hand over this moment to our partners at Avon. 
Over the past few months, I've been working closely with Avon reps, supporting them on their personal and business journeys. I'm constantly amazed by not only Avon's work and impact, but the resilience, grit and determination of each and every single Avon rep that I'm lucky enough to speak to day in and day out. They really are an amazing group of women and it's truly humbling to be part of their individual journeys. So with that in mind, for the rest of this series, I'll be handing over this ad break to some of them to share their own unique stories with you. Hi, my name is Hannah Cook and I joined Avon 20 years ago. I initially joined just to top up my full-time income, but now I'm proud to say it is now my full-time job and it's my absolute passion. There are many reasons that I love my Avon business, but one of the real benefits is the flexibility it allows me to have whilst looking after my two children. They're aged five and 12, so life is pretty busy. Avon has absolutely changed my life. I've achieved so much from everyday things like never missing my kids in their school plays to being able to afford family holidays to Disney. We've been to Florida four times. Running my Avon business has allowed me to achieve some of the most proudest moments in my career. And I genuinely just can't believe the opportunities I've been able to see throughout my time with Avon. Avon empowers women and not only has my own confidence soared, but I've coached other representatives to success in my team too. I just wake up happy every day in my Avon life. I just love everything about it, the brand, the products, but mostly the people. And I'm just so excited for what the future has to bring. If you'd like to find out more about our partnership or how you too could go on your own business adventure as an Avon rep, head to holly.co forward slash Avon. Now let's get back to our conversation of inspiration. It's pretty depressing. I mean, I know you, you've you suffered racism last week, but I also know you suffered racism, am I right in saying, when you were growing up? Hmm. Do you sometimes, uh, I don't know, not not give up, but like, well, you just, you know, yeah, you, you do. do, you you do. do. You, I mean, last week you, you could tired. have gone to court, you could have carried it on and you just went, hang on a minute, I'm not wasting my time here. People of colour are tired of having to yeah. fight it. There's no, I'm not saying people of colour are giving up. I'm just saying it's, it's a tiring process. Mm. Having to keep highlighting these situations, highlighting ignorance, going through the rigmarole of, of proving somebody said this and stuff. And when a lot of it is so kind of there in black and white for you to see, it's, it's crazy. Like, how can somebody spout some racist abuse to somebody? It's caught on camera. There's witnesses, but they can still wiggle out. That's the type of stuff that you think, like, is this worth it? And that's where the tiredness comes from. Mm. This has been going on for years and years and years and years, and still it's not getting sorted out, and people aren't being... Um, held accountable. Sent down, yeah, held accountable for their actions, and they're being able to hide. And social media, unfortunately, there's a lot of good social media, but there's a lot of bad, and it enables people to hide 100%. What do you think we can do? Like, because you're tired, but it's really all of our issue, right? Mm. It's not... It's not speak out. People have got to speak out. People are allowed to hide. People's family members, friends are, are, are doing this type of stuff, and they know about it. Yeah, don't say nothing. 
and education in school has got to be improved around these type of topics. Um, so young people have more of an understanding. So, so when they're around older people in their network or in their families and they hear that, they can pull them up and say, yes. hold on a minute, that's not right. And they can have a f- conversation because if you say, if, if a kid was in the house and their uncles are having an argument about football, the kid would join in. No, what are you talking about? And they've got an opinion. With, with no education about race, sexuality, mental health, etc., they can't have that conversation. They can't get involved and they can't put their best foot forward. Mm. So it's about educating the young people in the best way to influence the older generation and to be able to stand up and say, no, that ain't right. Mm. But at this moment in time, that's not happening enough. And that's, that's another reason why We Are Eight is such a, I feel, a huge platform as a huge opportunity to change the landscape of social media because it goes against all of those things. Yes. It has principles, it has standards, it has, it has ethics that a lot of the other platforms don't. Well, I was literally, I love your segue there because that was my next question. Exactly that. <laughs> Moving to like to present day, you're, as you said, remarried to your wonderful wife, Kate, and um, your children. And am I right in saying you've got a fifth child on, on the way yeah. as well? Yeah. Or go we to need the... to get a TV. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, born this summer, is that right? Yeah. Yes. Well, congratulations. And Thanks. we've been speaking about all this negativity coming through social media and we We've been brought today by my angel, Sue, um, Sue Finesse, who is the founder of We Are Eight and is totally disrupting the world of social media. Now, everyone listening to this, you've heard Sue on this podcast, but I want to ask, why are you so passionate about this? Am I right in saying you were sold on the idea after two minutes? I mean, Mm. yeah, I mean, she's pretty, you know, but all of that experience that you've had, Mm. there must have just been a meeting of minds. Well, I was filming the documentary you spoke about, Tipping Point. So I was going through this process of looking at data, looking at social media companies, looking for help, and nothing was forthcoming. So I was hitting my head against a brick wall a little bit, and I was seeing the impact, negative impact of social media on football players of all levels, of all ages. And I was involved in the online harms bill, taking it to the House of Commons to try and get it online harms bill passed, but that's not happened either. So I was already in this kind of, this area. And then someone introduced me to Sue. I sat down, had a, had a breakfast with her, and I said, like you say, within a couple of minutes, I was sold because I was looking at the solution for a lot of the problems I'd had while I was doing the research and while I was filming for the documentary. Mm. And she was kind of filling a lot of the blanks that I'd had. The ability for people to be exposed for bad behavior and bad practice on social media for the company to have the power and the tools to be able to highlight wrongdoings to be able to have full identification process when you go onto a platform so you can't hide yes then you look at things like being able with the social um, with the economic state of the world at the moment and the people that the plight that people are in at the moment and the scarcity of food and money the ability to be able to put money into people's pockets to help the environment all these things were just like, well, how can I not want to get involved in this? And so that was it. It was like a, it just came together at the right time and then that was it. Here we are now over like, I think it's two years later. It's reminding me of those examples, you know, when you said the naysayers, you know, mm. those that, um, you know, said, of course you can't go in there. Like, and it's, mm. it's what I said yeah. to Sue on the podcast and, and, and when we, we, when we've met, I'm like, you know, between you and me, Sue, are you not like really scared? You know, because... You're going up against the Instagrams and the Facebooks of the world mm. and you think you can do this. And she's like, but of course, 
But of course... But also, the, the, the conviction that she has is based on the previous job that she had in the business that she built before. Yes. She built a business that drew the data out of all of these companies to understand... Understood the work. ...how it all worked. Yeah, so <laughs> and understanding the, and the con. that. Yeah, and how people are not getting value for their money. People aren't being valued. The people that are on the platforms aren't valued. Do you know what I mean? And, and so when she's worked all of that out, and she, she it was such a compelling kind of pitch, I was like... You haven't got this, this. You ain't got to pitch this to me. Yeah, I'm in. You're like, in. Just where? Where do I fit in? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, and it's been a, it's been an amazing journey. Met some great people, but also it's been great to go somewhere and say like, there is a new way to do this. Social media just doesn't have to be the way that it's been presented to us. There is a different way to do it that benefits a lot more people than just a couple of people at the round table at the top. Absolutely. And for everyone, you know, we can go into We Are Eight more and more here, but go and have a listen to Sue's podcast. Mm. It's phenomenal. Tell me, um, what do you hope, Rio? So when we've talked about your story, you know, now now imagine we've got We Are Eight. We all have mm. We Are Eight on our phones. Mm. What do you hope that that's going to do? How would have it affected your story? You know, so... You know, will can sports change? Can um, mm. this documentary you you did wasn't required? <laughs> yeah, but do you know what? It's, uh, so, for instance, now players they go into a game, play a game at half time, at full time. What's the first thing do you think they're doing? Oh, they're picking up their phone, looking at social media. What's the what's the report look like? What, what what's being said? What's the what's trending? Am I trending? I've made a mistake. Am I trending? God, I didn't realize Fear. that. Really? Yeah, the fear that must happen and must go into these players when they're walking off the pitch. They're not thinking about, oh, my family were here watching today. What a proud moment. And uh, I've made a mistake, but ugh, we'll get through it. Fine. That's what it used to be. I'm, gonna, I'm devastated with the way I played today, but it, I'll go back to training tomorrow. It'll be gone. Social media doesn't sleep. It doesn't go away. It's there forever. So these mm. memes and that, that, all this stuff that goes on. And I'm, I'm, I'm someone who's a pundit and comments on football. So I understand it doesn't go anywhere. So you try to give a beveled and balanced kind of opinion on things because you know it stays there for a long time and the impact it can have. But So you've got to be as honest and as true as you can be. But the problem with social media is that a lot of people have voices who have maybe got that professional eye or professional opinion sometimes and it's just more of a vindictive approach that can really impact these players or these people in general. And so with We Are Eight in mind, that would have been a playground to be able to go where I'm not going to have that negativity pushed at me, where I can go when times aren't good and I can go when times are great and it will be balanced. Um, I can go and see where people are impacting the way the world in a positive way and go to where I'm uplifted when I leave the platform rather than thinking, oh my God, my life's over. I can't believe it, what people are saying. And that's the big contrast and difference between We Are Right mm. and the other platforms out there. Completely. And it is it is the way forward. And actually, when we think about it, all of us want it. Mm, yeah. You know, there's only a small group. You know, if we look at, I always say life is 80-20. Everything is divided 80-20. 80% of people want this. There's 20% of people who've mm. got the biggest voice at this point in time. Mm. And and that's the flip that we've got to make. And and thank goodness. Imagine, sorry, sorry, Holly. Imagine yeah, go. Ima I think about it with, with kids as well, my kids. Imagine I I give my kids We Are Eight. I can give it to them and just turn away with no stress. Yes. But when I, they tell me they're opening up Snapchat, yeah. when they're opening up 
TikTok or Instagram, oh, no. I'm sitting there yeah. thinking, right, where are the the parental locks? The, yeah, the, the parental locks, and where 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 are the guidelines for the kids? What what should they do? When when can I take them off of it? When can they have mm. the rules? What's the hour window I'm going to give them? How can I see it? Yeah. So it's just a, such a different approach and pressure as a parent, even. Yes. Got one that's like quite an easy situation, an easy transaction over here. We are right. Yeah. And the other one is just bringing me stress. Yeah. Because I'm worried. Yeah, I completely agree. My son actually takes my phone and um, he texts Sue directly. <laughs> and he tells Sue all the things he likes. And it's captured, honestly, captured his imagination. And that's like no joke. That is, mm. you know, he he unfortunately, you know, talks to Sue quite a bit about it. But that's <laughs> what's happening. So I would say to anyone listening... Just please go and check out We Are Eight. Understand what we're saying here because this is the future. Um, Rio, just um, finally, because I have enjoyed so much speaking to you. This mm-hmm. is just a moment. I've enjoyed it as well. Well, thank you. And, you know, you can only imagine everybody who, you know, potentially football and things and, and me, but I got to speak to you. It has not <laughs> gone down well at all with anybody. On this podcast, just towards the end, I like to ask those who are influential in our life and inspiring us, and you've been so vulnerable in this podcast, but if life is mm. like a roller coaster, and I likened it to people building brands and their vision of their life, we have our ups and downs. Would you share with me one of your biggest lows and conversely what would be one of your greatest highs yeah do you know i think that working hard is is like a given um and training hard being committed being consistent all the time but then sacrifices are huge you've got to make big sacrifices in life like the amount of family parties or family gatherings friends etc staying out later than that um those are a lot of sacrifices you've got to make i just think that i probably could have made a few more sacrifices in my career to have made me that much better whether it's a couple of percent or five percent i don't know what it would have done but especially in the early part of my career when i was at west ham and when i was at leeds i liked indulging in a lot of the stuff outside of the 90 minutes going out clubbing socialising and stuff, drinking a lot. And that's probably one of the only things I look back at and go, you know, if I could have changed anything, it might have been that. Mm. And that's what I talk about a lot with my kids. You've got to sacrifice. Sacrifice some of the stuff because you've got a long life to live after, a lot of time after that career. It's a short career. So I've said this a few times, but I don't know if you've heard it, but when I was a kid on our estate, we used to sit in the stairwells till late at night and with all my mates and one of the sayings that we had, I don't know who coined it, I'll take credit now, but <laughs> one of the things that we always used to say is that if I play one minute of professional football at any level, I'll die a happy man. Mm. And I ended up getting a deal with Nike and they allowed me to d- design my own Nike Air Force One. <laughs> and on the inner sole, on the inside, I had that written, that, that quote written on the in- inner sole. So when you put your feet and you see that quote straight away, so making it as a professional footballer in itself, forget all of what happened on that journey, but just making it was the dream I had and, and, I, and I fulfilled that dream. So yeah, that'll be the highlight. Jeez. How do your friends cope with you when not only did you get the one minute, you put it in a f- pair of Nike <laughs> trainers as well and sold it to millions of people? No, I wish it had gone to millions, but no, it was... Um, 
No, it was, you know what, it's one of the great things for me is that um, the, the friends that I talk about and that I've said at any time in this interview are the friends that I've still got on a WhatsApp group now. Right. There's about eight of us and they've been my friends from when I was a kid. And one of them said to me, which is like, almost, it just made me like, whoa, was, um, you know, when Rio, you used to wear that England shirt or you wore a United shirt and you picked up those trophies. I was wearing them shirts as well, man. That's what I felt like. And I was like, shit, man, you're going to break me, you're going to break me. Like, but like, it made me think, right, that's what I would have been like. If one of my yeah. mates had made it yeah. and I was, I was the revolt roles were reversed, I was always there, I would have been there. Do you know what I mean? Watching on match of the day, watching the yeah. live game or whatever. That is that is me running around. So to think that's how my friends felt was uh, was amazing. It's when you know you're surrounded by the right people, mm. when they want so much the best for you. They don't yeah. have any envy. They don't have anything. All they want, like we feel for our children, isn't it? Mm. And a lot of us don't necessarily surround ourselves with those people that just mm. want to lift you up. And your group of friends have wanted to lift you up and people have wanted to lift you up and you would have done the reverse instantly. And it's, mm. a, it's a beautiful way of ending on friendship and and what we can do with those that surround us. Um, Rio, thank you so much for your time today. I can't believe that you've written a letter to your younger self. <laughs> I can't even believe that I'm talking to you. <laughs> um, but we do end this podcast. We've had a, um, an amazing array of people, but you are certainly one of my favourites. And I'm going to hand over today for Rio to read a letter to his younger self. Okay, here we go. Right. It's difficult for me to write this letter to myself because to the outside world, it must look like success has always been at my feet. But the honest me looks at my feet and sees something very different. It sees a journey. They were brave enough to be wrapped in ballet shoes and withstand the lovely comments I got from my friends when I was 14. Strong enough to carry me into football, but more than anything, they always carried me home. Whenever there is success, it really is the people around you. My parents who sacrificed for their son, my family, those who saw something inside me to ignite, something I probably didn't even see in myself at the time. And over time, with dedication and commitment from them, every game, every football training, every disappointment, every loss, every win, every time, they always believed in me. They always saw their son. Eat, sleep, football, repeat. They never let me stop believing that my biggest, craziest dreams are possible. They always help me see that the ball can be kicked beyond the council estate. I wish I'd said thank you and I love you more often, but hey, that's me. Team was everything to me and great coaching showed me so much more than how to win in a championship. It taught me dedication. Those moments when you are tired and doubt yourself, but you stride forward anyway. Loyalty, making everyone around you shine. Remember, without them, you are nothing. Get over yourself. Trust your gut and learn from your journey. Trust, 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 and never, never, never give up. Show up always and be your best. I've known fear, fear of losing, fear of loss, and I survived and kept walking. I've known home, what it feels like to be loved and to love deeply, and yet I know, deep in my soul, that the best is yet to come. Because this life, this one wild and precious life has shown me that none of this would have been possible or would have happened without the fans, the people. And people are hurting. They're scared. They're lonely. 
and they can't get food on the table or heat in their homes. When people are tired, I'm not going to sit there on the sidelines. I want to fight for them. I will stand against injustice and bring it home. I've represented my family. I've represented my country. But now I feel that I need to represent my fans, all of the fans, the people. And that's why eight, the people's platform, is my chance to do this. I saw that chance immediately. A chance to give everyone around the world technology that serves them. A loving home where our community becomes one big blended global family. Where we see each other, we see each other celebrate. We celebrate each other and we support each other. Where we stop pretending and start discovering and learning. Where we disagree respectfully, because that's needed and that's right. And learn to meet somewhere in the middle. The word United has taken a whole new meaning for me and my family lately. I love my club, but imagine what is possible when two billion people on our amazing planet stand together, united. When they choose to be part of creating a better world and see their amazing power that they have to change the world. Because this time, the fans are the team and it needs to be hundreds of millions of people strong, standing together and taking small actions every single day. And cheer, because when we do this together, we can save our amazing planet and be the change that we want to see. Now, the older I get, the more I realise it is the simple things that make me happy. My beautiful wife, Kate, who I spoke about earlier. My four beautiful children, who make me smile every day. And the one that is growing inside Kate right now, God knows what she's going to be like. When I look into the faces of my children, I see what is possible, what can be done, that everything is possible. But more than anything, I see their hearts and their beautiful honesty, their innocence, their kindness and their little feet. And they see my little feet, my truth inside the big feet that carry me now. I'm ready. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't mean to make you cry. (laughs) I think everyone listening is crying right this second. Ugh. Just a second. Your passion and your empathy and your hunger to drive change Mm. and what maybe some people think of you on the face or surface, you know, a football player, an amazing presenter, et cetera, et cetera. But it's right. You know, this is it. This is the beginning, I think, for you in terms of we need people like you. Mm. We need your vision. We need Sue's vision and we need this change. And We're united with you, Rio. We are completely united and anything any of us can ever do, we need to back people like you. Mm. So thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for sharing that with us today. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it as well. It's been nice to talk to you. But but following Sue, um, she's the brainchild of this, is really important. I think that a lot of that in there is talking about her as well, especially near the end and the impact that we can all make just with those small little tiny actions every day, joining a platform like We Are Eight that can really impact people at scale. We've got a huge opportunity. And listen, everyone just dream, man. Mm -hmm. Dreaming's good. What did you say earlier? You said something like, dreams can come true. They can. (laughs) If you work hard. If you work hard. Well, it was a dream of mine today to speak to you and it's come true. So thank you, Rio, from us all. Thank you very much. Nice to meet you. If you've enjoyed this episode, if it's helped you along your journey or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? 
Your support means the world to me. It really does spread the word and will help inspire even more people to build a life they love. And if you want to hear all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co. Thank you.